Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on investment and collaboration strategies in cell and gene therapy from the 2022 Immuno Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcast, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Thanks for that introduction. Um, so we're here today uh, with a great panel to discuss investment in collaboration strategies in cell and gene therapy. I come here to immuno-oncology from venture capital. Uh, I started my career at Founders Fund, investing in internet and software, um, and then somewhat accidentally ended up here after starting the Parker Institute with Sean and Jeff Bluestone back in 2015. Uh, our stated mission at PICE, uh, Parker Institute, is to advance immunotherapy to fund research, foster collaboration uh, among investigators, and break down barriers to progress. But over the past five years, it's become evident that the type of progress we envision can only be completed, or cannot be completed, without investment in company creation and partnership to bring new therapies from bench to bedside to market. So before we begin, I'd like to briefly introduce our excellent panelists joining me, which I think many of you already know. So first to my right, we have uh, Mark Boniati. Uh, he's a senior advisor at Cheeming Venture Partners. Uh, before Cheeming, Mark was a research, research executive at Juno, and before that was part of some great teams at Invitrogen and Excite. Mark did his academic work at UC Berkeley on T-cell immunology under Jim Allison. Next, we have Elaine Chung, who is a business, business and corporate development executive for over 20 years. She's currently the SVP at Lyle, where she oversees corporate and business development strategy and operations. Prior to Lyle, she ran business development at Grail after leading it spin out from Illumina. Uh, to her right is Bernard Clemen, who's a late addition to the panel. Uh, he is an active angel investor and co-founder in life science startups, primarily based out of Europe. Uh, he is currently the CFO at BitBio and works closely with the management team uh, across the company. He started his career uh, with a decade in M&A at UBS, Morgan Stanley, and JP Morgan, where he established the Austrian business unit. And finally, by Zoom, uh, unfortunately we couldn't have him join us due to weather, is Dr. Arjun Goyle, who is a co-founder and managing director at Vita Ventures, where he's been since 2017. Arjun was previously an investor at 5AM Ventures, where he helped build homology medicines and paratherapeutics. He was the co-founder and CEO of Foresight Pharma Pharmaceuticals, a company focused on developing hormonal treatments for infectious disease. So I'm still getting used to doing in-person meetings, so I think we're going to start on Zoom um, with Arjun. Arjun, can you hear us okay? I, I can hear you fine. Great. Thanks, Great. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what life's been like for you at Vita Ventures lately. As we heard this morning, and you would have heard if you hadn't gotten stranded in Boston, uh, there are uh, roughly 500 cell and gene therapies currently in development. So like, like many life science investors, you're actively looking at these companies. What trends have you been noticing in the space, and what questions are you asking when evaluating investment opportunities? Thanks, Michael. Uh, I would say, uh, take a step back and say, at least for cell and gene therapy, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Uh, we've made tremendous progress over the last decade in terms of getting uh, the first set of, uh, of approvals in cell therapy for, for, for oncology, uh, also gene therapy for rare diseases. Uh, and so the first generation you know, is done. 
and now it's 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 really uh, you know bringing the uh, the promise of, of cell therapy to a much broader uh, patient population through uh, you know uh, you know treating solid tumors and to make these cell therapy products uh, a lot more accessible and cheaper uh, to the broader community and, and so that's really from us vantage point Avita that's what we focus on. The three things we look at are, you know, when we look at an investment, uh, either an investment in one of the many companies out there, as you've, as you've noted, uh, in excess of 500, uh, or putting companies together, and, and Vita, at Vita we're very active in company creation. Uh, we really focus on three, three elements. The first uh, is, is, is the science uh, uh, or, or the technology. The second uh, are the people involved. And the third, uh, which is really the derivative of the first two, is what's the right capital formation, you know, strategy, uh, you know, to, to enable product development. And those are those are three things that we look at for any really any therapeutic investment. But when it comes to cell and gene therapy, uh, you know, we, it's 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 really tailored to uh, you know to to what's happening in the field. And I'll just go through each of those very briefly. In terms of platforms, uh, we 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 believe that the like many of you believe that the holy grail is for cell therapy and solid tumors. So we're exquisitely focused on putting companies together or investing in companies that can help answer that, whether that's through, uh, you know, through uh, looking at new cell types uh, within T cells or beyond T cells, uh, whether it's looking at, uh, you know, a, a set of targets that, 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 that the universe out there has not really interrogated. And these are, you know, particularly intracellular targets, oncogenic drivers like KRAS and P53, or whether that's you know, looking at, uh, you know, uh, you know, allergenic and in situ approaches, approaches beyond autologous uh, that with the right you know, engineering uh, techniques uh, can help address, uh, address solid tumor populations. We're active in each of those three buckets with uh, company creation efforts uh, and, uh, and, and, and efforts in existing companies. That's the first element. The second element in terms of people, I think this is really the, you know, the crux of, you know, what we focus on. At Vida, we would say that cell and gene therapy is uh, is 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 not a is not a game for for, for beginners or for, for first timers. There's a real you know savoir faire that that's that's required when it comes to uh, understanding the engineering, understanding the product development, understanding how to work with regulators, and most most importantly, understanding the CMC and process, um, and to be able to do that in the in the in the right way, due to the capital intensity of of the field, you know, you, you're not really afforded a second chance uh, if you get things wrong uh, first time round, uh, either particularly by markets, uh, public markets where they stand today, uh, even frankly by the regulators. So, uh, so I do think it's important, you know, putting together teams that you know have been there, done it, and have some understanding of the challenges uh, within the field uh, is something we we focus on, uh, you know, a lot. And then the final piece, uh, capital formation. You know, whilst a lot of capital has come into the, the industry, which is a great thing, I would say with cell and gene therapy, you know, it is, it is capital intensive. Uh, and what we're always looking to do is, is, is finance our companies so they can have more than one shot at goal uh, or more than one uh, sort of generation of technology which is being, which is being prosecuted. So, so you'll find at least with Vita, and, and I think it's important in the field that you know, larger rounds are raised, um, uh, and uh, and 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 you know something we'll talk about in this panel is is how how do we work with uh, pharma to to get non-equity capital so we so we can make these companies go go longer and lo longer uh, before they can access uh, public markets. 
Thank you so much. That That's a very great holistic opening answer, and I think a lot of those themes are going to come up uh, across all of the questions and, and things we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Elaine next. Uh, you know, everyone in this room knows how criti critical business development and partnerships are in this industry. Um, in your work at Lyle, uh, what have you been seeing over the past year or two, and how, and how are you approaching uh, working and partnering with other cell and gene therapy groups? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, maybe I'll just spend a moment to give a little bit of context on what Lyle does, and I think it'll help to frame uh, some of the comments that I want to make. Um, so Lyle's about three and a half years old. Uh, we're a Bay Area and Washington State-based biotech developing cell therapies exclusively for solid tumors. We have a ROAR1 CAR program that's entering the clinic this half, and then we plan on filing an IND um, in second half of this year for a TIL-based product. We also have a uh, partnership with, our, um, with a great partner, GSK, developing an NYESO TCR product. Um, in terms of the platforms that we're developing and advancing, we primarily focus on two core pillars. One is an anti-exhaustion approach through genetic engineering, which we call GenR. This is based on overexpression of CJUN. And then we also have something that's focused on epigenetic reprogramming to uh, enhance the durable stemness qualities of T cells, and we call that technology EPR. And so we're testing these platform technologies across our product portfolio. And so trying to cover quite a bit of ground, but I think that that should um, you know, give a sense of, of where we're at. Um, in terms of partnering, I mean, this is absolutely essential. I think Dr. Kalos um, highlighted the complexity of what we're dealing with. And it's, it's a much bigger problem than any one company can, can solve itself. And so we see partnering as a very essential approach. And um, in terms of what we've been looking at over the last year or two, um, you know, I think part of this is dependent on what phase of the company you're in. And so at the beginning stage of the company where we were still articulating our core hypotheses and crystallizing our narrative, um, we could afford, and, and we're lucky to be well capitalized, and so we could afford to place a number of small bets, um, cast a wide net in terms of looking at different partnering approaches. And um, I would say in two general themes. One is looking at complementary or orthogonal approaches to um, our, our core approach. Um, the other would be to apply our technologies in a way that we can have multiple shots on goal and look at how they work in different modalities. Um, earlier in the company's life, we were able to um, you know, just try a lot of different things, make several small bets, um, but as we now head into the clinic, and we have to become more rigid. You know, we're, we're heading into GMP manufacturing. We have to be very focused on executing on our clinical strategy. Um, it's, it, I would say that there's a more focused effort that we now need to take in terms of how we define um, partnerships going forward. Um, making sure that we have the runway, the cash runway, to last through our clinical trials and to get to the key value inflection points is very critical. And focus, um, and not to not be distracted from our, our strategy over the next year to two years is, is very essential. Um, and then the strategic value of partnerships 
um, in terms of which ones we select, I, I would say that we have to be, um, you know, more careful. Um, and so we're, we're starting to, you know, our partnering strategy is evolving as the company evolves. I think it's a natural part of a life cycle for, for biotech companies that are headed into the clinic. But we've had the privilege of um, establishing several great partnerships um, throughout our, our relatively short life to date. Thanks, Elaine. That's very interesting. And I think um, particularly uh, a nice dovetail towards a question I want to ask you, Mark. Um, you know, you've got an interesting sort of dual perspective of working on the investment side, but also having been a part of uh, company building at Juno. Um, what do you think it means to be a founder today who wants to start a cell or gene therapy company from scratch, given the landscape and the immense competition? Yeah, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a great question. If I had the answer, I think uh, maybe I'd do that. Uh, so I think I've, I've seen, you know, in the VC part of this equation, you see a lot of things that come up and, you know, are looking for financing. And a lot of it comes out of the academic space. You have founders coming out of, you know, out of an MIT lab or a Berkeley lab or, or Stanford, wherever it might be. And they have a great idea, but they don't have the experience of launching these things. Then you have a lot of Nucos that launch out of serial entrepreneurs who have like accumulating technology or ideas and, and building companies. And it's somewhere between those two that I think are really great because what is really important, I think, to successfully launch a company is to have deep biology, which tends to come from the academic space. Um, so you, you need to have that deep biology, but you also need to have kind of the, the operational experience. I think that was uh, our Already, already mentioned that you need to have people who understand what each of the steps are as you move towards uh, value creation, building a lab, uh, moving from the bench towards the clinic, and for partnerships as well. And I think having that blend of both the deep biology and the, the experience is absolutely critical. And I think the other piece is you know, understanding that you have to have something that differentiates you from other players in the field. Can you provide something that's not just a me too, a new twist on something, but something that really enables things to move forward more quickly and more intelligently? And I'll just, I throw, in, I throw this in that there, there's like four or five things I think are critical. One, it's to have, understand the deep biology, understand the competitive space, how you differentiate yourself. Also to have some kind of IP foothold so you have some ownership and someone with more more money, it's not going to come by and, and do the exact same thing and pass you by. So you need to kind of build your, your IP landscape around that. And I think, uh, to, uh, to kind of pair what Lane said, strategic partnerships early on are very good because I don't think there are very few new codes today, unless you're super well financed out of the gate, that can afford to move, build the entire infrastructure to move their, their technology platform towards the clinic. And so you can leverage strategic partners for, if you can provide them something that will give them a leg up on their efforts to move into a space, uh, they, can, they can provide other uh, infrastructure pieces, whether it's manufacturing, vector production, CMC expertise, things like that. So it's important to be have some assistance there because also that helps with your capital spend. You can accelerate your ability to do some proof of concept in the clinic while you're building uh, other parts of your portfolio that that may be more interesting to you. 
That's, uh, you know, this topic of uh, incentive alignment as it relates to um, partnership is something that I think uh, we should talk about today, and I, I definitely want to get to that. Um, I think, Elaine, you've got some unique perspective there. Uh, but before we do, I want to get uh, Bernard involved here. Um, you know, you've heard uh, a few things so far already. I'm, you know, I'm curious, is the one person on this panel not sort of localized here in the U.S.? Um, What's different abroad? What what is different in Europe, or what where has, where does it diverge from the things that you're hearing in terms of the companies that you're working with? Um, f first of all, um, um, I think it still makes sense um, to also say a bit, uh, a couple of words um, on Bitbio um, and why Europe. Um, Bitbio um, is based um, out of Cambridge, but not Massachusetts, um, United Kingdom. <laughs> um, and uh, we have started out of an um, academic lab, um, um, which is quite typical, um, in particular for Europe. Uh, and I come to the particularities and the differences um, soon. Um, but what we have, um, and uh, this ties in then, I think, also in the later discussion, is uh, we, have, uh, um, we have IP, um, we have a platform that is able to produce um, cells, human cells, uh, at scale, um, at high precision, and at high quality, um, which provides uh, a huge challenge for us um, because we can apply it uh, in various um, different directions, on the one hand on the tool side and on the other side also on the therapeutic side, um, on the therapy side. Um, and uh, um, what you said, Ellen, this is exactly what um, we are also now going through is really we could do so much, but where do we really focus? Um, and in particular, if you combine tools business um, with a different business model, and then on the other side, um, um, therapy, which, uh, you know, clinic, pre-clinic, these kind of elements, this uh, provides uh, quite a challenge, and in particular, um, also when it comes to management attention and attracting the right talent uh, that is able to cope with that. Yeah? This is also something we hear quite often, but uh, um, this is also part of the journey how we, why we need to professionalize ourselves yeah? um, as an organization, and uh, um, also given different stages that we go, go through um, on those two um, different pillars. Um, with regard to European particularities, um, I think... Um, one thing has already been mentioned. For all the, uh, what we do, we require a lot of funding. Um, the European funding environment uh, versus, um, uh, in particular, the US one um, is underdeveloped. Um, we know that, not um, at the early stage. So you find seed capital, um, you find maybe even Series A, but normally valuations are still lower. Um, this adds then on top that you know, um, it becomes more dilutive. Um, um, and it becomes even less attractive if uh, you are finally able to attract um, then U.S. capital um, in certain follow-on um, funding rounds. So what we try to do um, early on, already in the Series A, is go beyond uh, um, um, the, the big ocean um, and attract U.S. capital, which we did quite um, successfully so far and allowed us also to um, raise a quite sizable, for European perspective, a very sizable um, um, Series B, um, which now provides us the, um, the run rate that we need to um, achieve uh, major inflection points on our side as well. Um, but number one is um, clearly funding. Number two is uh, it's even, I think, much more um, um, science and um, academic heavy, um, the whole um, ecosystem. Um, 
less experienced founders. Um, the combination of having a founder that is able to, um, uh, that is scientifically strong and on the other hand also commercially strong um, is um, very rare. Um, so a lot needs to be developed and uh, um, from, and I have, um, as uh, um, has been mentioned by Michael, I've also both heads, I've an uh, investor head myself. Um, I'm actually also an early investor in BitBio before I even became CFO, so I like these transformational roles <laughs> um, as well um, because it gives different perspectives and makes you also a better investor in the long term. Um, um, but finding the right um, you know, um, founder um, that has the DNA to um, on the one hand, develops to a certain um, extent, and then on the other hand, also um, is knowledgeable about um, um, his own gaps where he needs to complement himself with others. Uh, um, and in particular with science, this is sometimes difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, that's, that's number two. And then obviously, um, productization, tra uh, translational capabilities um, in, in Europe, also quite, uh, quite a shortage there. Um, so I think these are three points. Fourth point um, as well, manufacturing capabilities. Um, um, and that then uh, leads to either you know, um, partnering or building yourself. Um, um, and uh, the way I see partnering, um, um, to some extent is really, really also a buy and build um, um, and a decision what do you do on your own, what do you do with partners and then the definition obviously of the right partners which can change from you know um, over the course of um, the life of a business. Yeah. So you know I've heard a few themes come up from all of you that I think are you know really worth talking about here as a group and you know hopefully open this up a little bit more for a discussion amongst amongst the panel um you know we talked a little bit about sort of the immense need for funding and the the fundraising challenges given how costly uh the space is we've talked about team building and and sort of having the right phenotypes of leadership involved to be able to attack what's an incredibly difficult problem and we've talked about you know collaboration and in focus in order to gain efficiency where you can so you can specialize and be good at the things you need to be good at without trying to solve the whole problem. Um, you know, one thing that comes up for me, particularly around the funding piece, is is data. And, um, you know, Arjun, I wonder if you can maybe speak to this, considering, you know, you're sort of the only one in the group kind of fully focused on uh, making investments at the moment. Um, not every company can be Juno or Kite. You know, how do you think about the landscape for all these companies that have no clinical data? Has the need for data changed when you're thinking about the space? It's a, it's a good, good question. So I, I, when I put my company building hat on, and there are you know, three hats that we wear each at Vita, company building hat, private investor hat, and public investor hat. When I put my company uh, building hat on, the reality is, you know, we're investing in companies that will be in the clinic in, you know, maybe two or three years, putting companies, putting companies together that could be in the clinic in two or three years. If that, in fields like allogeneic cell therapy or in situ, uh, you know, uh, engineering, you know, methods that could, you know, overtake even allogeneic, which really now is, 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 is there's no approved allogeneic cell therapy out there. So, so you know, the, the need for data is, you know, it's, it's really an artificial need at the, at the company building level, at least clinical data. What we're looking for are, you know, reproducibility of, of the academic data that we see uh, in, in independent CROs and, and, and we fund that. And then we're really looking for the teams that can, uh, you know, that can actually create um, or, you know, uh, re reduce to practice to industrialize 
you know, the sort of the basic academic technologies. Uh, if I put my Series A hat on, uh, my private investor hat on, um, uh, and and Vita does lead its own, you know, uh, uh, its own deals, uh, uh, companies it starts, and it also leads other uh, other deals. Uh, I, I still think, you know, that if you we as we know cell therapy well, and we would say that in a phase one B setting. Uh, to, to expect a 30-40% response rate uh, in, in, in the right patient population, that's a very high bar, particularly for solid tumors. Uh, you know, they, so, so, you know, the, the, the bar for us actually is, is, is not a, a data bar even in, in the private, you know, uh, pri private syndicated setting. It's, it's really to, to make sure we're on a path to, you know, a multi-generational approach uh, for a program. Uh, where the, the first generation generation can help, you know, de risk a technology, address the right target. So we, we, we're very careful about choosing the right target. Uh, and then, you know, the next generation of, of engineering may, may be able to uh, address uh, some, you know, the tumor microenvironment, for, for example, for solid tumors uh, and, and, and be the, you know, the construct that can really uh, drive value. And, and for that, the way we mitigate around that is by doing uh, you know, uh, pharma deals and by raising the right uh, amount of capital, so much larger rounds, so so these companies have a bit of runway, so they can they can get to the the right data and not be bold into public markets, uh, where uh, you know if if you don't hit the right you know response rates, you're punished and you really don't have much of what much of a way back. So we tend to hold our our, our companies private a, a bit longer, uh, and uh, and then when we're ready for prime time. We understand the public market game, which is data-driven, catalyst and data-driven. You know, we're, we're, we're at, at that point, we're ready to take that, you know, take the plunge or take that back. So, Elaine, uh, when you hear that, how does that relate to your experience thinking about uh, partnering with companies that may not have as much data as they wish they did? Yeah, that's a tricky one because, I mean, this field is so nascent, right? And all of this um, uh, data is developing. I mean, from, you know, the approach that we've taken is, you know, very much along with, with what just Arjun just said in terms of we know some of the clinical correlates um, and the phenotypes of cells that seem to work. Um, particularly as it relates to cell therapy, we look at checkpoint inhibitor um, efficacy. And so we have a sense, uh, we're developing a sense, and, and you know, that this will advance further in terms of um, what are the phenotypic markers, um, what are the, you know, the cytokine profiles, um, et cetera, that, that we need to see. And so part of what has convinced us in terms of the approach that we're taking is that we're able to reliably and reproducibly um, develop T cells with the same phenotypes that we're seeing in the literature. And so that really helps. And you know, I think there's a lot of different things that um, you know, we as a, as a village or as a city, um, as one of our colleagues said yesterday, um, need to do is you know, we need to look at better models. Um, but we need to also just have a narrative around what the biology is. And so you, know, you, know, you talk with um, labs or, or companies that are doing these screening experiments. And you can always find. Um, interventions which you know results in a profile that you might be interested in but how does that biological story hang together how do the mechanisms of the biology of, of these hypotheses fit together and so we're looking not only for um, the particular correlates but also that it all 
um, you know, just, it just all fits. And so um, as we think about our portfolio of research and the next generation beyond the technologies and the approaches that we're testing in the clinic, um, we're really building on that biological story, looking for other dimensions of the same kinds of pathways that, that, we, that, that we're you know, convinced to, to proceed to test. You know, uh, Mark, you mentioned this idea of differentiation and trying to find ways to stand out and not uh, compete where you shouldn't compete. Um, how do you navigate the distinction between, you know, platforms and therapeutic assets and, the, and that question that always seems to come up in every conversation when you're thinking about focus and sort of positioning yourself, um, especially for an early stage company that's trying to do something in a really crowded field? Yeah, I think, again, that comes back to the, the issue of of, of differentiation and not being just kind of a new twist on a common theme, but what can you bring that is novel and needed in a space? And so the therapeutic space, I mean, every platform I think that I see come forward, almost all of them will have some therapeutic indication in, in space, whether they've aligned on their initial therapeutic target for actual CMC formation. I don't, you know, that's another question. Uh, but. I think, at least from the investor point of view, and coming from the the, uh, the company build side, from the biology side, um, I think platform is really important. So you want to have something that gives you a leg up, accelerates the ability to be more effective in the clinic, um, understand your product better, and so it can apply to a line of therapeutic products. So whether it's a, a T cell, another cell type, or or you know gene editing, whatever it might be. So I want to come back to, I know this is a little off target here, but it comes back to the, the question about characterization. And what I see a lot of coming through the pipes or up, up the, the chain for investment are technologies that look good, sound good, but the data that is provided to support the hypothesis is okay and it's aligned with what I call kind of historical metrics. Uh, but if you go out to the, the the uh, analytics show out here, all the new tools and devices we have for a deeper analysis, whether we have you know, ep epigenetic analysis, you have single cell uh, studies, this kind of data takes us a lot deeper into understanding a platform and therefore uh, ultimately the therapeutic. So my, my bias is always to look for something that is a platform piece that can apply broadly across space, whether it's oncology, autoimmunity, transplantation, um, regenerative medicine. So I, I know I've kind of gone broad afield here because I think the distinction between, between a platform and a therapeutic is kind of, it's a, it's a muddy thing. So I, we do see things, therapeutics, that come up straight away as a therapeutic, typically a small molecule or something that has been outlicensed from someone who has the technology, and that's a very different space. And I think in those spaces, the optionality is more limited. You're looking at a very narrow focus field of application, unless it's derived from a platform that's a new discovery platform for new targets, for example. So as a follow-up to that, you know, if, if, if I'm an early stage founder and I recognize how much money I'm going to need to raise, which we'll hopefully get to if we have time, um, how do you think a founder needs to position themselves, you know, with respect to this question when approaching a VC? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great question. And I think if you have someone who's experience already been in industry it has been through this uh, this process before it's a little simpler um, I think you just have to position it as a you have to tell a great 
story. You know, why this is different, why this is good. Uh, get people excited about what opportunities you're creating there. Um, if you have the science and the IP to support this, I think that's, that's a good launch point. It depends where you are. If you're looking for seed funding, it's going to be easier. If you're at a Series A, there, there are more pieces you have to add to the puzzle. Um, I don't know if that fully no, that's great, and you know, I think it dovetails well for you know Bernard. You just recently raised a uh, large round, and you know, you've probably got some really good experience with this. Um, you know, what is this? You know, as, as the companies need to start raising bigger and bigger rounds, what does it mean for fundraising efforts? Um, fundraising is a full-time job. Uh, maybe that's the easy answer, but it's not an easy answer. Um, no, it's um, in the end, obviously a. a um, a combination of different um, uh, things. Um, there is, a, I would say, a typical pattern um, from um, what you have used to see um, on the biotech side um, in terms of you know round sizes. Then uh, um, obviously um, you have different cycles on the tech side. I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning that because um, I see more and more. Um, um, some interdisciplinary approaches, you know, bioinformatics, uh, synthetic biology, and so on. So the old um, um, matrices um, and frameworks are not really any longer um, um, applicable to, to all situations. Yeah? So um, it is really important, uh, um, as already mentioned, that you um, um, come with the right data, um, come with science, um, have a clear plan around um, IP which is there, there and that uh, the IP ecosystem that you um, develop around. And um, when it comes to platforms, it's really about um, how, um, how do you most efficiently validate um, um, for us on both sides, clinical and, uh, and, uh, and the tools side, um, and what do you do with partnership and what do you do on your own? Because most, uh, unfortunately, at the beginning, you have to do on your own um, um, because the validation is something other partners need, need and that then accelerates um, partnerships. Yeah? For us, in the longer term, uh, um, our sales uh, should be obviously like a share currency that we use for partnerships uh, um, or to... Um, start um, um, or accelerate or enable um, teams that have, um, have certain um, assets that we can support or um, are in certain disease areas where we want to be in. Um, but at the beginning, we have to do the groundwork on our own. You know, before we run out of time, I, you know, this clock counting down right in front of us, um, you know, something that's really near and dear to my heart around uh, collaboration and partnerships is this idea of incentive alignment, which, Elaine, we, you know, we talked about a lot recently, uh, you know, finding ways to create a sandbox or a structure, an environment that promotes very healthy uh, collabor collaboration amongst people that are not necessarily all on the same team. And, you know, I... I I wonder, from your perspective, uh, what you've learned and what your perspectives are around how to approach aligning incentives, and in what ways would might people be surprised about how incentives can get misaligned in forming what otherwise seem like great partnerships? Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. Thank you. Um, you know, I think when when we look at partners, I mean, first of all, there's a, a cultural element that's really important to us, and um, you know, the the best partnerships feel really personal. 
And the best partnerships feel not only personal, but also the incentives are aligned. But I think incentive alignment is a dynamic thing. And it depends on how the science is evolving, and it depends on where in the life cycle each of the companies are at. And one of the things that I've observed is that when we look at and talk with early companies um, you know, that, are, that are young and still trying to figure out their business model, it's not always clear. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, even at Lyle, you know, we have these technology platforms that we think will have applicability. So, so just to be clear, we're an autologous T-cell company, but looking at multiple modalities, cars, tills, and TCRs. And we think our technology platforms could have applicability in the allogeneic space, could have um, applicability in other kinds of cell therapy types, um, and, and perhaps um, in non-oncology areas. And so for just one second, we were like, are we a platform company or are we a product company? But I think in terms of um, looking at valuations and looking at exit timeframes um, for investors, it becomes really clear that um, the value is on you know, specifically therapeutic product plays. But when we talk with earlier stage companies that may not have had the same kind of capital access, um, it, it can be a debate. And, um, and sometimes we'll enter into a partnership where the company says, you know, we're a platform play, and this is how we can complement what you're trying to do. This is how we're going to move the needle on whether it's your manufacturing process or, um, you know, tunable reagents that can enhance activation in the process. Um, but then at some point they say, you know, actually we're a therapeutic company now. And so then we start to look at, well, are we collaborating or are we you know, potentially competing, particularly if they're developing um, oncology applications or areas? And so that becomes a little bit more tricky, but then again, if you have a great culture, um, we've typically found that um, you know, we can either work through this and identify our respective areas that we're most interested in, or if it doesn't work out, um, that, that's okay too. Um, you know, we look at a lot of different dimensions, but that's, that's a critical one. That's, that's, that could be a whole panel in and of itself, culture fit amongst companies and groups and teams. Um, we can maybe save that for next year. But in our last minute, I want to uh, kick this over to Arjun, who we wish could be here with us in person. Um, you know, the recent public market action has, you know, undoubtedly cast questions over valuations and, and the field at large. You know, how does this broad repricing affect how you're thinking about your work in, in cell and gene therapy? Uh, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, Michael, it's something we think about a lot. Uh, public market investors think a lot about a lot. I would say, you know, uh, two things. The first thing is that, you know, frankly, for uh, investors, uh, there are a heap of cell and gene therapy companies now on the public markets, which were one, one half, two billion, which are now 300 to 700 million, uh, with peri or post proof of concept data. So Adapt Immune uh, has shown that their TCRs, you know, uh, look interesting. And Maddox has shown that their TCRs look interesting. And their market caps are, you know, you know, three to, to five or three to seven hundred million. Um, you have Install Bio and Iavance, which are uh, TILS companies, which have peri or post proof of concept data as well for solid tumors at one and a half to two billion. Um, so each of these companies are, you know, sixty to eighty percent off their lows, uh, off their highs. Um, I think as the market turns, you're going to see a lot of interest in, in structured, you know, you know, capital solutions to these companies that need more, you know, more capital, frankly, for their mid to, to, to late stage product development. Uh, and I know as, as we speak to other investors, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of interest in, in, in providing those solutions, uh, at least on the public side. 
On the private side, it's a lot more difficult uh, because frankly, a lot of investors are seeing that value on the public side for, for clinical stage cell, cell therapy companies uh, you know, with, with, with data. Um, uh, the way I think about it on the private side is, is really how, how can we ac access uh, not just the equity capital, but the non-equity capital uh, from pharma uh, so we can get into the clinic, uh, you know, with, you know, what we believe are, you know, differentiated technology platforms to novel targets that can, can address uh, cell therapy companies. The, the, the question we, we face from, from, you know, follow on investors is uh, being comped to, uh, to public market companies like the Dartomy and Enematics, uh, you know, who are, which, which are in the three to 700 million, you know, price, price bracket. Um, so that's, that's kind of the issue we face. Uh, for, for, for company builders and private market investors who are thinking about valuations today, um, because we wear both hats, uh, you know, uh, we, what we say is that this market will turn. We don't know when it will turn. Let's capitalize our companies on the private side, you know, for two, two years plus of runway and, and be opportunistic about accessing low cost of capital when, once the market turns. Um, so we're not come to, to these, you know, public market companies that, you know, will turn, uh, but uh, you know, right now uh, may make it difficult to, to get the right value. So it's 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 really a double-edged sword. Uh, investors will always, you know, you know, uh, you know, use use the information to their advantage. So whilst there are opportunities on the public side, my view is, and certainly what we're doing at Vita is is doubly, doubling down on on selling selling gene therapy company creation, uh, but just making sure that these companies are very well capitalized uh, for for two years so they don't need to go public. Thank you. I wish we could go uh, a lot longer because of so many things we just started talking about, but unfortunately we are out of time. So I want to thank Arjun for joining us virtually. Wish you could be here. Uh, Bernard, thanks for joining at the last minute. Elaine and Mark, really glad to have you. And uh, thank you guys for listening and uh, uh, really looking forward to the rest of the session. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.